Did you know the Tribeca Festival showcases more than just film and TV? Tribeca's audio storytelling program, sponsored by Audible, is happening June 9th to June 13th in NYC. It includes premieres of new indie podcasts, plus exclusive live tapings of popular podcasts like Slow Burn, Criminal with special guest Melissa McCarthy, and Vibe Check with special guest Lena Waithe. Don't miss it. Get your tickets now at TribecaFilm.com. Get ready to laugh out loud at the Tribeca Festival, June 5th to June 16th in NYC. Experience hilarious talks, comedy specials, and feel-good films with your fan-favorite comedians like Hannah Einbinder, Judd Apatow, Neil Patrick Harris, Tig Notaro, and more. You have to be there. Get your tickets now at TribecaFilm.com. What's the purpose of news? And who's it for? I'm Sean Ailing, and I'm your host for Vox Conversations. I've thought a lot about that first question, but I haven't thought much at all about the second. I guess the reason is because the answer seems obvious. The news should be for everyone. Every citizen needs to know what's happening, and the news is how they find out. The problem is, that's not really how it works. The news business is a business, and that means it's a product more than a public good. And like any product, it's made for profit. So if you want to understand what the news is and why it looks the way it does, you have to reckon with that reality. In this episode, I talked to Nikki Usher, a professor at the University of Illinois and the author of a provocative new book called News for the Rich, White, and Blue. Her thesis is that news is now made mostly by white liberals for white liberals. And that that is a major problem, not just for the news business, but also for American democracy. This is an insight I've stumbled around for years, but Usher's book clarified it for me in a way nothing else has. So I brought her on the show to talk about her work, why it matters to every consumer of news, and how we might save the news business from itself. Nikki Usher, I have to say... This is a book I needed to read. I wanted to read, but I didn't know it until you wrote it. So I'm really thrilled that you're here and I'm really thrilled to be talking about it. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. I mean, I sort of, I've never wanted something I've done to get out as much, which I think is a weird thing to try to say, but I think I'm surfacing a lot of stuff that is part of the current conversation. It's just great to be here to chat about this with you. Well, I've, I've spent the last few years making lots of critical noises about journalism, and you gave me a whole fresh list of grievances here. <laughs> so I'm, I'm indebted professionally. You know, I live to make things on Twitter uh, even more obnoxious. So, yeah. Okay, let's dive in. One of the things you do in this book is poke holes and some of the myths about the role of journalism in democracy, like the idea that it challenges rather than reinforces power, or even the idea that local news is inherently good for democracy. Um, <laughs> you know, what would you say is the most common or misleading or maybe even pernicious myth? So 
one of the things that you often hear DC, New York types talk about when they're worried about news deserts and people losing local news is they'll say something like, there'll be nobody to cover city council. There'll be nobody to cover corruption. And when you actually go on the ground to some of these smaller news outlets, you realize that there isn't and hasn't really been anybody covering the school board. And sometimes the editor of the newspaper is actually on the school board. And so there is this like presumption that there are these accountability journalists in every community who are doing the good work of accountability journalism, when in reality, that's true in some places, but not true in many, many, many other places. So I think that's kind of that way of doing news just isn't a thing in many places and has never been. Well, let's back up just a little bit. I don't typically do this, but I think it's important with your book to just kind of ask you as simply as you can to just lay out the core thesis at the heart of it about you know who's making news and, and who news is being made for. Yeah. So the book is called News for the Rich, White, and Blue, How Place and Power Distort American Journalism. And it's one of those titles that I think really gets to the heart of the argument. So the best quality news and information that we have in this country has often, and for as long as I can remember and you can remember, been targeted at what we call a quality audience, right? So people who can pay, people who are influential, people who are elites, right? So the New York Times has always served kind of a cut above the rest, even since it's inception when it was first bought by Arthur Sulzberger. So because news organizations are commercial, right? Some news organizations like big newspapers that we really respect for the kind of work they do, they've always sort of targeted that kind of audience. So in that regard, there's really nothing all that new. But what's happening is in this market failure of journalism, where especially for newspapers, but also I think for digital first outlets as well, the advertising model is completely, completely, completely broken. And so that further distorts the pre-existing distortions. News organizations, especially sort of the institutional news media, have always been, for better or worse, very white. And we haven't seen much budging on that. And as the labor precarity of journalism grows, right? It's scary to become a journalist because you don't know if you're going to have a job the next day, right? right? The kind of people who get to have a shot at being journalists are increasingly people who have opportunities and experiences that don't resemble the vast majority of America. So that kind of changes who the news is made by. And there are winners and losers in the land of journalism. And those winners are big national and international outlets. And the losers are small to mid-sized news organizations, the kind of regional standard bearers like the Chicago Tribune or the Miami Herald. That's deeply problematic because you have people who are in cities far away from the places that they might need to be called upon to cover. And journalists get their authority from being in places the rest of us can't be and reporting on what happens there. And when that reporting just isn't authentic or rings untrue because it's not actually representative of what's actually the local culture on the ground, that worry about distrust just kind of grows and grows. And I guess the last part of this, Sean, is the blue part. And 
We have to have a conversation about the fact that the only people who really care about the institutional news media and what it has to say are liberals. Republicans, for the most part, have abandoned Vox. <laughs> they, never, they were ever there to begin with, right? Yeah. I do want to emphasize something right at the top, and then we're going to work our way back through a lot of this. Because the way race and class intersects in this book is so complicated and, and so important. But I do want to say right here that you know this book is about how the economics of news alienates or distorts underrepresented people. And those underrepresented people are not just black and brown Americans. It's also millions of white Americans who aren't part of the creative class, who aren't affluent, who aren't liberal, and who don't live in places like New York and D.C. and San Francisco or, or L.A. or whatever. And that's something that I think is just important to have in mind. Yeah. I mean, I think that when I tend to talk about who's been historically left out of the conversation about journalism, I say historically marginalized groups, particularly people of color and rural Americans. And there, of course, there are people of color who are rural Americans, but there are just vast expanses of rural America that's majority white and has also never really seen itself reflected in much national news coverage in a way that anybody on the ground would feel was representative in any kind of way. How did we get to this place where news is mostly made by and for rich white liberals? I mean, is this a, a self-inflicted crisis or is this the product of forces beyond anyone's control? You know, I think it's a little of both. And I actually think it's really important to focus on what has been in the control of news organizations all along, because it's really easy to throw stones at Google and Facebook. And they they deserve some stone throwing, No, like legit, right? But there are also things that I think people, especially in the news industry and journalists, tend to lose sight of, of what the self-inflicted harms have been, right? So let's go back to just this idea of monopoly. And if you think about many major cities in the United States, there's one big newspaper. And there's been one, maybe two for decades, right, that has told the story of that city. Well, those monopoly news organizations really thought that they would continue to draw the attention of everybody in their geographic region once everything went online. Like, where else would people go? We we are the newspaper of record for this city. Well, we know where people go now. They definitely aren't going to local news sites. In fact, I think it's people spend about five minutes a month on their local newspaper, if that, right? Yeah, that much. Yeah. So they vastly, vastly misunderstood that they would no longer be selling audiences to advertisers in the same way once they moved online. And, you know, I think there were some basic misunderstandings about what might happen when digital advertising emerged as a revenue stream. So there is this idea that like there is this infinite amount of supply. So if you just you remember from the early 2000s, and some sites still do this, where you like click through photo galleries and every photo gallery has a little ad to it, right? That was all conceived of as a way to like increase revenue because the more stuff we have, the more ads we can put next to it. Well, if you have more supply, you're actually undermining the cost of the ad. So like <laughs> these basic economic understandings, I think were some of the self-inflicted economic wounds, right? The presumption that this monopoly 
audience grabber could not be challenged. So I think that's one side of it. And we can also talk about the racial exclusion side of it, but I wanted to establish that self-inflicted wound that starts this all off in kind of the early digital era. For me, at least, your book clarified the racial inequity problem in journalism in a new way. And again, I emphasize for me, because I'm, I'm sure other people have long understood this, but I think it's easy to look around newsrooms and see more and more diversity and think that's the solution. We're on our way to the solution. And, and maybe in that vein, dismiss some of the urgency around this problem. But when I'm criticizing other aspects of media, I'm almost always focusing on demand side problems yeah. as huge part of the explanation. And yet I never really did that on this front. If media outlets are writing for mostly white audiences, as you point out, then the imperatives of that are going to distort their coverage. And that's not a problem that can be solved by merely diversifying on the supply side. And I just think that's an important thing to say loudly and clearly. Have you felt like that is a thing that is often overlooked or at least underplayed? I think that it's really important to listen to the voices of historically marginalized groups that are in newsrooms, particularly people of color, because just because you're there doesn't mean you're part of the conversation. And, you know, you just have to look at Twitter to see these testimonials of journalists who have literally been told that they can't write about Black culture in a particular way because they're writing for white audiences. And if you think about the people who are most likely to pay for news, they have been these white audiences. They have been these folks who are out in the suburbs, you know, needing to get information about the big city, right? And these are predominantly white people. And the news is being made by people in power who are predominantly white. And so having diversity in the newsroom itself doesn't change the underlying presumption of what news economics are like. And I think that it gets even worse when you look at some of the really distorted markets. So I think it's 80% of Detroit is Black. And if you look at the Detroit Free Press, I think it's something like maybe 19% of the staff is Black. And so that says a lot about who the Detroit Free Press thinks it's marketing to and how it is marketing. And it's not always so much what it's said, but what's implicit. So until we start to recognize that there are extremely underserved, viable markets that are part of big cities and empower and recognize journalists of color primarily in newsrooms to actually change the tenor of coverage, we're not going to see any change. And there's no motivation to do anything right now, because that's not what people presume as the path forward for, for digital subscription economics. A huge part of this story that explains how we got there is the collapse of local and in many cases, regional news. And you say very clearly in the book that this is just something we have to accept. We have to accept that in your words, local news is dead. And for that reason, shift to what you call a post newspaper consciousness. What does that mean? I mean, I think that you just need to look at any big city in America and you see that the newspaper of record just isn't what it used to be and isn't what it says it is, right? Because, you know, they're just playing catch up with a much diminished staff. And it's clear that the commercial model for supporting journalism in most of these places, they cannot get the audience they need 
through digital subscriptions to support running a newsroom. So we have to just kind of accept that for better or worse, there's not going to be some magic solution. Sure, there might be some places like Boston where you have a super benevolent John Henry who owns, you know, the most profitable sports franchises in the world, right? And maybe he'll, he'll run it at a deficit or you've got Jeff Bezos, who's charting a brand new future for the Washington Post. But those are sort of the exceptions rather than the rule. And the sooner we stop trying to save the news, which is pretty broken, right? The the news that we're talking about saving has long been broken. I don't know why we want to save an institution that has maintained the status quo and undermined people of color and not been the advocate we might like of crusading public spirit. We need to think beyond the commercial model for local newspapers because we can do better. It doesn't mean that newspapers don't matter. And it doesn't mean that journalism at the local level isn't important. It's just propping up an institution that is far from perfect just for nostalgia is not the right way to go. So, you know, obviously one of the things you're saying here is that newspapers, if not quite dead, are broken. Mm -hmm. So my question is, why not simply fix them or look for alternative revenue streams as opposed to just putting them out of their misery, as it were? Well, you know, I think that the rebuilding anew versus trying to fix something broken might be in this case the better move, but I don't want to lose sight of what is important about what newspapers do. And by and large, they're important because they provide the most original coverage about any one place. But professional journalists do things that other people can. And I think we have to think about kind of how can we surface some of the most important things that journalists do provide. And that's why I want to say kind of like a post-newspaper consciousness. If if it's going to be just such an uphill battle to fix something that's so broken and doesn't really seem super economically viable, what do we want to save? And I think we want to save the way of asking questions and the type of professionalism that brings out the best of what newspapers have to offer. I think that maybe that's investigative journalism. Maybe it's these broad looks sweeping back at the history of a place and taking it into account. What do we surface from professional journalism and professional newspaper journalism specifically that is something we want to hold on to? What is it that we lose when we lose local journalism? I ask in part because this is something I've found it very difficult to get people to care about. It's just not sexy enough, I guess, Uh, but it just doesn't move the needle and it doesn't seem like a problem for a lot of people. But I think it is. And and I'm just curious how you would kind of frame the price we pay for losing local journalism as we know it. Right. So I was thinking a lot today about Hurricane Katrina and the Times-Picayune. The Times-Picayune, which no longer exists, right? This like 150-year-old paper cared so much about that community that in 2005, before we have all of the software that you and I have now and like super fast Wi-Fi and all of that, they were managing to put up a web report in the middle of a hurricane and then figured out a way to print papers to bring that newspaper back to people who were in the Superdome to give them a sense of what was going on. And because those journalists were living through the recovery, because those journalists who had lost those homes, they could be advocates in all the right ways for their community. And It hurts me when I think about that because there were actually protests from people in New Orleans when the advanced publication said, we're going to three days a week publication. 
there is a special relationship, particularly for people who stay in those communities for a really long time. This is their home and you care about your home in a different kind of way. In one level, you lose your best advocates. And on another level, you lose the memory of a place. Yeah. I was in Louisiana when Katrina hit. Oh, I remember quite well. And there's the dimension that you're talking about now, the role of these local papers and and helping to kind of construct the cultural memory of of places and, and preserve it. And then there's also the ways in which it contributes to the nationalization of the news and therefore the nationalization of politics. And I think that goes a long way in, in just turning everything into an abstract conversation and it feeds into the tribalization of politics where it's just kind of red team, blue team, left, right, because yeah. the debate is never about issues that are really immediately germane to people in their actual lives. It's just this abstract stuff about, you know, the horse race stuff that feels very right. removed. It's, it's television, you know, it's not, yeah. it's not civic life. No, I think you're you're absolutely right, Sean. And I think this is a longer story because there's been a real retrenchment in state journalism reporting. And I think that some of the efforts from Politico and Axios recently maybe have shored that up a little bit. But state legislatures like used to be where it's at. Like before you went to DC, you had to prove yourself at the state house, right? And Actually losing that regular state coverage, I think, has really contributed to this nationalization we're talking about. And we need to remember that the nationalization of our attention to news is also a form of polarization. When we turn ourselves away from the local to the national, that is sort of a distortion of what we're actually paying attention to. So when the national news narrative is what's dominating the conversation. And the only time that local politicians or locally elected lawmakers make it in to the news is when they do something extreme. Those are the narratives that get captured and you don't really understand directly what's actually happening in your community. And look, national politics, it's a drama. You know, since 2015, 2016 to present, It's actually, for better or worse, something you can't take your eyes off of. Whereas the mundane things that the mayor is talking about with like whether or not to build a new park, it's just not as compelling, right? Yeah, no question about it. And there's another part of this that I really want to hear what you think. And that is the asymmetric polarization around media trust. It's just a massive issue. Conservatives, for the most part, don't trust mainstream media and liberals for the most part do, or certainly disproportionately so. In your mind, is that right-wing distrust the result of conservative Americans rejecting a media system that abandoned them? Or does it spring from right-wing media entrepreneurs cultivating anti-media hysteria as part of their business model, which in turn creates a demand-driven pivot by mainstream media outlets who had to serve the customers they were left with? And I guess that's kind of a bloated chicken or egg question, but I'm really curious how you tease all that out. No, I mean, I think we can answer this question historically, and I would refer listeners to Nicole Hammer's book, Custodians of the Right. Yeah. The story of the right-wing attack on the media begins with Barry Goldwater and his assault on the Eastern liberal press. And it was a concerted part of Nixon's Southern strategy. So if you go back to kind of 
the 1950s, right, 1940s, 1950s, the parties really weren't all that different, right? Like Eisenhower had to decide what team he was going to be on, right? But as the parties started to differentiate, the need to really cultivate a separate media space became a critical pillar of the conservative establishment. I don't think William F. Buckley would ever have imagined a Ben Shapiro, but I do think that Ben Shapiro is the heir of that, right? And so what has happened has been there has been a long-standing assault from the right that tells people over and over and over again that you can't trust the media because it has a liberal bias. And most people, regardless of whether they distrust the media, also believe that the news media has a liberal bias. I would say that the news media has a centrist bias, especially with the he said, she said insistence on objectivity and upholding and supporting those in power. So I'm not exactly sure I I agree with that. I think sometimes bias is in the eye of the beholder. But I think that you really need to see this as a deliberate political strategy. But, right, and here's the but, is that what's come in behind this has been the degradation of trusted local news. And a lot of that trusted local news actually is far more conservative than most of us recognize. Yeah, I'm with you on the centrist bias. I mean, I, I think the, the most important bias is the bias towards entertainment, mm. the bias towards whatever gains attention, right? It's a commercial bias. It's about whatever keeps eyeballs plugged to the screen one way or the other. And, and that's, that's theater. And whether that's conservative or liberal is irrelevant. It's about what makes money. And that's, that's, that's always the, the predominant bias, much more than in, any kind of ideological agenda. I mean, I think, you know, what you're, you're kind of talking about is like the old school political economy critique of the news media, which yeah. is that a commercial media system is driven by a commercial market <laughs> and you do what you do to get attention. And I, I keep coming back to the CBS Les Moonvies comment that he made about Trump being terrible for America, but great for TV. Can you imagine if if cable television and network television, the people at the top didn't feel that way? Yeah. And just to clarify, you know, when you say that the main bias is towards centrism, not necessarily left or right, people may wonder, well, that sounds boring. <laughs> if, if the goal is to capture eyeballs and, and ratings, you know, it seems like the theater and sport would be more profitable. But I think by centrism, you don't necessarily mean that. You mean the kind of horse race, just politics as a TV show more than anything else, right? I think what I mean by centrism is this insistence on capturing all sides of the story, regardless of who's actually morally right. And this insistence on recognizing authoritative experts as the authoritative experts, right? So every time you go to a police chief and get the police chief's version of what happened, you're reinforcing the status quo. You're reinforcing who actually counts in having power in American civic life. I think that's really what I mean. You're not challenging prevailing authority when you're taking the words of those authorities and broadcasting them as essential to telling the narrative of what's happening in the United States. Can you say a little bit more, the way you use the word place or talk about place is very specific. And, you know, part of the argument you make in the book is that it really matters where people come from because it shapes how they think about stories. In place for you isn't just geography, right? It's it's conceptual. It's about the position yeah. you, you occupy in the social hierarchy. So why does this stuff matter 
in terms of the actual product that gets delivered to people? So place is a useful concept because everybody kind of is somewhere, right? Even though we're all virtual right now, like we have a physical geographic place that we reside in. And then we also have like the kind of history of experiences that we take with us, like our accumulated life experience. And for some people, those accumulated life experiences set them up with a lot more privilege than other people. But also who you're around and where you are affects what you see as important and where you are dominates your worldview and who you're with helps you define what's important. And so when journalism becomes increasingly bifurcated, both culturally and socioeconomically, but also geographically, where the news organizations most likely to survive are the Voxes of the world, right? Are the New York Timeses of the world? That's when you start to get distortions. We've already heard Nikki talk about some of the factors that complicate the fate of local news in this country. But I want to ask her about another one. Is what happened to local news the same thing that happened to the manufacturing industry? She'll give me her answer on that after a short break. Look, part of this feels like a problem that the media didn't create or amplify, but rather just a natural consequence of just rootlessness among the public themselves. The fact that fewer people than ever actually feel connected to their communities, to any place at all, because these things are disappearing in an increasingly mediated and fragmented world. You know, the economics of the country are driving people away from their local towns into more metropolitan centers where the opportunities are. And the story you're telling here about the media is, reminds me a lot of you know the story that Alex McGillis tells about Amazon and its kind of rise to dominance, which is itself just a natural consequence of the death of these industrial towns in the middle of the country and them being gutted and, and people having to flee and, and the consequences of that. It feels like the same story. I think it's not just about Amazon. It's about political and economic regionalism and the winners and losers um, geographically and what that then means. And I think that's absolutely the case that journalism is caught up in all of this. How much it's the cause of this, I'm, I'm not sure, right? I think that it probably creates some of the narratives that helps drive some of this. But I think that journalism is caught up in this big winners and losers thing. But I do want to push back, Sean, a little bit on what you said about people being increasingly less rooted. Uh, That's you, perhaps. Uh, But for a lot of people, the the less power you have, the less you're able to move. And I think a lot about people who are in rural America that actually have the benefit of home ownership. And these homes are completely falling apart. But that's where they live and they have that option. And of course, the history of Black home ownership in the United States is abysmal, right? But being able to actually move is a very, very important luxury that some people have and other people don't. The sociology professor Patrick Sharkey has a book called Stuck in Place. And I think that the reality 
for those struggling the most is that they lose this mobility and the people at the top, I like invoke this idea of like the placeless guy who like experiences never really change because you're at this like elite hierarchy and flying first class everywhere. And, you know, going from one hotel bar lobby to another hotel bar lobby and your experience of the world really doesn't change that much because it's, an experience of a global elite unbound by anything material. Can you give me maybe an example of a story that exemplifies some of these problems you're diagnosing, like an issue or a narrative that gets elevated or ignored in the current media system that maybe wouldn't get elevated or ignored if we had a more diverse, balanced, representative system of the sort you're advocating for? Yeah, I think that you just need to look at what before the election were called these Trump safaris. And now I think they're kind of like the anti-vax safaris where yeah, people yeah. from these big media centers are dropping into Arkansas and interviewing the most anti-vax people they can find and getting people at sometimes in their worst moments. But painting this caricature of that part of red America as completely unreasonable and unable to listen to information, unable to be persuaded, the victims of their own, you know, circumstances and the amount of shame and blame that we see around COVID and, and the anti-vaccines. Whereas I know people in my own community that have refused to get vaccines and people in my hometown suburb of New York who have refused to get vaccines. And so that sort of anti-vax rural America, look at these people making bad choices. That's like that toxic, toxic, toxic narrative. And that really gives the right-wing media some really solid fodder from which to say, your story is not being told right. Is that really what you're like right now? You know, and actually, if you make that decision, you're one of us. Yeah, you know, I live in the Deep South, and it's impossible to overstate how irrelevant, really, a paper like the New York Times or the Washington Post is. The cultural power of these institutions is still enormous, but it's completely alien to a place like southern Mississippi, where, where I live and where I grew up. These institutions just don't matter here. In the same way now that the latest pronouncements from the CDC just don't matter. People don't trust these institutions and they don't listen. And people can feel about that however they want. I'm just saying that's the reality. And, you know, in the absence of high quality local journalism, which we don't have, it's just Fox News for breakfast, lunch and dinner. And that's a disaster, in my opinion, both for places like where I live, but also for the country. Uh, I think that we're also, we really need to talk about local talk radio and local conservative talk radio. And I've been talking actually to rural public health officials across the state of Illinois. And whenever I talk to them about what news media they're reaching out to, some of them have conflicted. Some of them have great relationships with the local conservative talk show that's on, right? So there isn't really a sort of, especially in places that have lost local media, an intervening voice. And I think you're absolutely right that the New York Times is more of a boogeyman than it is something people actually subscribe to, though I think 100%. the New York Times would disagree with us. They would probably say, we have subscribers in every county in the United States, and we have 8 yeah. million subscribers. Yeah. And I was thinking... I was reading your book and I was actually thinking about the coverage of billionaires like Bezos you know, flying his 
giant penis rocket into space. And on the one hand, I get it. It's a fascinating story, but also it feels like a lot of navel gazing from a class of very comfortable people. If there's a billionaire beat, it should be exclusively focused on tax avoidance and and, <laughs> and wealth inequality, not on vanity flights to space, uh, which I guess is its own like perfect metaphor for late capitalist America. I think that let's temper our cynicism about the lifestyles of the rich and famous insanity because that's also been sort of entertaining for for decades and decades and decades. And actually, like there's always been this like interest in the lifestyles and the rich and famous. And while I agree with you that the focus is deeply problematic, it's something that's kind of an enduring feature historically of journalism. Yeah. Well, look, you've, you've now joined what's becoming a very proud tradition of guest checking my cynicism. So <laughs> congratulations on that. I will, I will then pivot back to more serious business. And the way race and class intersect here, as I was saying at the beginning, is, is so complicated. And I do want to ask another question about that. Yeah. I think you're right that a great deal of journalists are affluent white liberals, often from elite universities, and, and that biases coverage in, in all the ways you've described here and, and many others. But it's also true that most of these white liberals are culturally progressive, more progressive than most of the country. And, and by the way, not just to the left of white people in Nebraska or Alabama, but also more culturally progressive than a majority of black and brown Americans who don't live on the coast. How important is it in your mind to not just push for more racial and gender diversity in newsrooms, which is obviously necessary, but also more ideological diversity? And I just want to be clear, by ideological diversity, I don't mean both sidesism. <laughs> you know, I mean, more smart, serious, good faith journalism mm -hmm. that treats these perspectives seriously. I, I don't mean, you know, we need a, a Tucker Carlson for every Lawrence or Donald or anything like or, that. Or, or a Brett Stevens for, you know, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, let's yeah, do that. Yeah. No, I, I think that first I want to be clear because I don't want to give any more fodder to the right than we need to, that we actually don't have good data on the political persuasions of the bulk of American journalists. There are still journalists everywhere in the United States. And if you were to talk to some of the journalists who own these little community papers that I talked to in Illinois, you would not be saying the same thing about like woke liberal white progressives. I think the journalists that you're talking about are the journalists that flock to wanting to work at places like Vox and potentially at places like The Times. Though I do think that the institutional sort of heavyweight of both ciderism and the insistence on objectivity at some of the nation's largest newsrooms really stifles that wokeism, right? And really frustrates a generation of journalists that thinks we can do better with the privilege of being and working at an elite institution. And so I think it's really, really complicated to talk about how personal politics then get reflected or amplified by institutional mandates and choices. And I think that there's actually more of a mismatch than we might like to think. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry I, uh, to jump on you on that, but I no. do want to, I don't want somebody listening to this and thinking, oh, yep, there they are, copping to the fact that all journalists are liberals. Well, and that's I, why we've got the liberal hey, media. All right, hold on. <laughs> Wait a minute. Hold on. I'd look, you're right. I was not claiming that all journalists are, are anything, but I, I will stand by the very general claim that 
for the most part, particularly journalists at mainstream elite institutions, are politically progressive and more certainly more so than a good deal of the country. I, I will concede that maybe the, the data yeah. on this is not perfect, but I feel very comfortable making that very general claim. You know, it is worth saying that the reason people become journalists is that they want to make the world a better place. And I think that is that a liberal bent? Is that, you know, to say that we could be better than we are? Is that an essential progressivism? I think that's the true spirit of progressivism, right? Is that the future can be better than the past. And that's what brings a lot of people to journalism. And I think that's really important to hold up as as something to honor and, and recognize and be proud of. Yeah, 100%. I think we can definitely agree there. Yeah. Our love of journalism aside, it's important to understand the relationship between democratic societies and the media systems inside of them. We may think that our democracy shapes our media, but what if it's the other way around? That's next after one more short break. There's a line in your book that jumped out to me in part because I had just finished a book actually with uh, co-author Zach Gershberg, who, who you may know, he's a media professor over at Idaho State. And we land in that book in a very similar place. And I just want to throw this quote at you because I just, mm-hmm. I found it very provocative and interesting. And I would just love to hear what you meant by it. You write, there are many forms of democracy that emerge from different media systems. And we get the democracy we deserve based in part on the media system we support. That's a hell of a sentence. What, what did you mean? Well, it's inspired by uh, other people as all of good academia is, but <laughs> Edwin Baker, a famous sort of media policy scholar and James Carey, a famous sort of cultural scholar of media, they both really believe that the spirit of America was invoked in the press. And it's a very John Dewey sort of understanding of America where like our press is just an extension of our public sphere, which is just an extension of our culture. And I think that what you see now, and I was grumpy about this on Twitter, but I think it's like the perfect example is, well, Obama has pushed back his 60th birthday party because of COVID. And it's like, oh, that's what we're going to cover. And who needs to know that? What are the type of people who would care about that? And so when you start to focus on a certain select group of issues, as the economics for news and information get increasingly distorted, the imperative to cover political figures who are powerful and corporations that are powerful, those are, if you have a time of limited resources, that's what ends up getting covered. And the people who are in the best position to pay attention to that and do something about it are not people like me. There are other people who might be invited or annoyed that they were not invited to Obama's birthday party. And so there are lots of different types of democracy. It's something that democratic theorists spend a lot of time thinking about. And you can have a democracy without it being a representative one. And you can have a democracy without it being inclusive. We have that right now. If we support an inclusive media and we support a media that cares about inequity and social justice, we have a better country. It reflects the spirit of a country. It's sort of a recursive thing. Is there 
any viable long-term solution to all of these problems that doesn't involve news being treated like the public good that it is? Does the news have to be subsidized on some level? Do we need to rethink the legal and tax status of news organizations in a way that acknowledges their unique role in a democracy? Or is that just not doable? I think that in other countries, we have pretty good models for better supported public media. I have to say that the past four or five years have really soured me on the potential of public funding for media. I am really scared about what that might look like and how that might become another point of contest. I mean, libraries can't even agree about whether to purchase a subscription to the New York Times. And and that's with public money. So I really, really, really worry about, at least in our current fractured environment, um, I think the public media we have is incredibly important, but it's one pillar. So I don't think that we really want government subsidy. I don't know if this makes me like still a libertarian or I don't know what this is politically, but I get really scratchy and when the United States federal government starts to define like what counts as news and what would be counted for in some of the bills that are currently underway. And while I agree with them in principle, I'm like, ah, you're putting parameters on what we're defining news to be. That that kind of scares me a little bit because I think the people defining news may not understand news the same way other people do. But okay, let's get back to your question about with the broken commercial system for newspapers particularly, but also I think digital first outlets. I think that there are sort of a couple of ways that maybe we can bring some balance back. And when I say balance, I mean independent media that's commercial. And I think that the reason Google and Facebook are so powerful is in part because they own the entire ad stack through which digital advertising works. And they own all the data, which enables the targeting of that, Amazon too. And so I do think that there's a possibility that if we do some sort of data privacy, antitrust breakup sort of stuff. I don't know if it would fix things, but I think it could be a nice reset. What I have been pushing has actually been, and I think that you have to know that Republicans are already subsidizing local media at the local level. And it's not always big political donors in DC, but local political donors and local Republican activists. And pretty much every state in the United States has a right-wing digital first outlet. I think that the Democratic Party and Democratic activists and Democratic donors need to start subsidizing news at the hyper-local level. Take some of that money in politics and put it towards journalism. And I think that, look, the commercial model for media didn't exist when this country was founded. It was a party press. (laughs) And we don't have a functional commercial system that's going to work in many of these markets. So maybe we need to go back to a party-subsidized press. Well, let me float an idea at you here and and maybe push a little bit against something you were saying earlier about newspapers. So that the party press model, which I actually love, I'm with you on that. And Derek Thompson of the Atlantic wrote, I think a really great piece a couple of years ago, making a very similar pitch. So the party press model was, was a thing, but also at that time, the government subsidized independent newspaper printers Mm -hmm. using the free press clause, as I'm sure you know. And, you know, there was like a one cent postal delivery. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. of newspapers. I mean, is that is that maybe something that we could resuscitate in today's time and, and kind of lift up the old model or, or the old idea of, of you know local rags kind of serving their, their communities? <laughs> well, those local rags didn't print much local news, or if they did, it wasn't particularly accurate. Like it was come move to this place because you can 
get better fur trapping here, you know? <laughs> like, um, So I wouldn't call that like the paragon of local news. I think unfortunately Tocqueville's myth of like a local newspaper with local news is kind of more like a local newspaper with news reprinted usually from places in Europe or from other newspapers. Mm. But, you know, to your point, are there subsidies that we can think about that either exist within the system or exist statewide that might be a little bit more politically tenable? I think there are. And I think that it just kind of involves like a careful reading of what those might be. So a press subsidy that we don't often talk about is actually at many state universities have a student programming fee. And that student programming fee goes to everything from putting on the big concert to paying for foam fingers at football games, but also towards paying for digital subscriptions and they like subsidize a subscription to the New York Times. So it's a really weird three steps away state subsidy. And I think that we need to sort of think creatively about what are the ones that are already present. So there's a real call to look creatively at existing stuff on the books that maybe just might exist at the state level or could be expanded at the federal level. We still have a a mail subsidy for magazines, right? So I think it's a great point. And I think that people like me and legal scholars need to do a lot more kind of careful reading of of what those might be. You alluded to this earlier, but you are not a fan of this new philanthropy or this new philanthropic model in which billionaires like Bezos prop up newspapers or or other media outlets. What What are the risks of going that direction and just ceding this to rich people? Yeah. So there, I think there are like two kinds of philanthropy. There's the philanthropy because I'm a rich person and I'm not super worried about losing money on my newspaper. And like, that's an old school model. Like, right. That's in Citizen Kane when you're watching and it's like, that's an old school. You get power by owning the press and yeah. billionaires have been doing that for a long time. And you can't depend on a billionaire because you don't get to choose your billionaire. We should probably talk about nonprofit philanthropy. Right. Like the good old kind from the McCormick Foundation and the Knight Foundation and the Carnegie Foundation, all of these foundations that are doing really excellent work trying to subsidize journalism. And I think that they are serving a critical and important role. And in some places, there might not be any quality news and information without them. But philanthropists have pet causes. Who are philanthropists? Who are these foundations? These are people with money. Where are those people with money located? What are the commitments of those people with money? And if you actually follow some of the data that we do have on philanthropic donations, you start to see that certain pet causes get favored above others. So there's almost no money really given to covering homelessness or poverty-specific journalism, whereas there's lots of money given to cover environmental news or investigative journalism. So I think it's people want this like one size fits all solution that we can kind of like flip a switch and we've saved journalism. But you have to kind of think of it as a pillar strategy because no one solution is perfect. And where you are makes a difference in what solution might work or what list of solutions or what group of choices might make your community become something that can sustain viable local news of some sort. And it doesn't have to be from a newspaper. Well, to land this thing on an optimistic note, as is my custom 
Um, uh, are there any other promising journalistic experiments going on around the country right now that maybe people should know about that might offer a glimpse of a better future for news for everyone? Yeah. So I think that there are some really important movements that are putting social justice at the center of journalism. And I can't think of a better move. And social justice and racial justice are really tied together. And so I love that we're seeing kind of a flourishing of media that cares about justice that is more representative. And so there are all sorts of new outlets that I'm starting to see flourish. One of them that I just learned about was Prism Reports. Um, there's this nonprofit called MLK 50 in Memphis, which is dedicated to social justice and racial justice. The 19th, I think, is an awesome example of putting feminism and gender equity at the center of journalism. City Bureau in Chicago is doing something really interesting to leverage the power of people by training people to actually go to public meetings and take notes in a way that could then be recycled for stories or just be posted on their own. And we have to make sure that these sort of smaller digital outlets are able to be amplified because a lot of these small digital experiments don't have the good fortune of being Vox and their messages can get kind of caught in the crosshairs of the internet. And so I'm super excited about these new flourishing social justice, racial justice forward outlets. I think that it's the kind of stuff that should inspire people to go into journalism, but we have to make sure that they're heard. So I want to flag something you said about the need for media to lean into social justice activism because there's a tension, or at least appears to be a tension between that claim and your thesis, which says rightly that it's a problem that news is being made by liberals for liberals. Now we can say lots of things about the media over the last year or two. But one thing I don't think we can say is that there was a shortage of social justice activism. Now, I'll be honest and say, for me, the problem is that a lot of what passes as social justice journalism isn't actually very interested in justice. It's a lot of symbolic punditry produced largely, as you say, by white liberals for a very targeted audience. And I think it's mostly divorced from an actual materialist political project. Now, I don't know how much of that you agree with or, or don't agree with, but I did at least want to raise the tension and let you respond to however you want. I think it's an absolutely important tension to bring out. And I think it's important to realize that the news media that we're talking about is already just paid attention to by liberals. Like there is this whole section of the American populace that will never, ever, ever navigate to Vox. And so given that this is the reality, why not just go all in? Like, why not just go all in for transparency? And why not just use the power of the press to advocate more directly for justice? And I think you can see this at the New York Times. Like, there's this huge tension between what a younger generation of journalists really wants from the Times, which is to use the institutional heft of the New York Times to say something meaningful about the present, not 1619 past, but the present state of injustice in the United States and the sort of old guard that's like, we play it down the middle. We are not positioned to take shots or take sides. So I think that the tension that you bring up is exactly the tension that 
is making it so difficult for the news media to kind of like move forward. So to address the liberal news media, to to acknowledge that and take that on would be the confirmation of 40 to 50 years of Republican right-wing attacks on the institutional news media. It would be an absolute vindication of everything the right wing has been saying about the news media. And so the institutional news media cannot do that. But on the other hand, the only people who are really paying attention to what the New York Times is reporting and what the Washington Post is reporting, those are those are liberals, right? And they want something more. So it's a tension that you are bringing up that is kind of the crossroads that the American news media finds itself in. It almost speaks to a, a kind of damned if you do, damned if you don't situation, right? By taking a political position aggressively, but superficially, it actually <laughs> accomplishes almost nothing. And, and if you, since you're going to be kind of charged with that in any case, it makes more sense to do it in a more authentic, meaningful way as opposed to well, the ways we've described here. Pretending that you're going to play it down the middle, reenshrining the power of the status quo, giving false neutrality to voices that don't deserve it when the only people paying attention are the people who really want to see that institutional power leveraged to check power. And so it is a damned if you do, damned if you don't situation. Nikki, I just want to say this has been great fun. It was so wonderful to talk to you. This is a really important book that puts a lot of the problems I've been dancing around and thinking about into a much sharper frame. And uh, I'm grateful for that. And I'm grateful for you being here today. So thanks. Thank you so much for having me. Vox Conversations is produced by Eric Janikis. Our editor is Amy Drostoska. Our theme music was dreamed up by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. And Liz Kelly Nelson is the VP of audio at Vox. And I kept telling people, I'm like, you guys are reporting on this. Like, this is not going to go the way Nate Silver says it is. You have to, like, look at what's around you. And they're like, no, no, no. The polling has gotten better and better. And, like, we know. If you like the show, let us know. Room for improvement. We want to hear that, too. We're curious to know what you think, what you want more of, what we could improve. And if you have ideas for future guests or topics, send us your thoughts at voxconversations at vox.com. And hey, if you did like this episode, share it with your friends, rate and review. And join us on Thursday for a brand new episode.